0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo. Expand your imagination and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, Executive Director, joined today by Jamin Hubner, who is the general editor of Christian Libertarian Review, our forthcoming academic journal, and Ruth Ryder, who is one of the assistant editors of the journal, along with myself. So Jamin and Ruth, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. So jamin this is actually your your third time on our show uh, you and Jeff Tucker were tied for two appearances each uh, up, up until just recently but now uh, now you've pulled into the lead once again so so welcome back you were also our very first guest uh, our fourth episode I believe so I'm very excited about Christian libertarian review as I know that two of you are as well this is a project that's been in the making now for about a year and a half. Uh, but, Jamin, I think you were thinking of something along these lines even long before that, and it just kind of worked out that LCI became the parent organization of the journal. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what what the journal is, why we're doing it, where the vision came from, and, and what we hope to accomplish with it.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, <clears throat> well, generally speaking, you know, libertarians are kind of those types of people who you know, we we believe our our way of thinking and our approach to things, politics, economics, et cetera, uh, is is intellectually credible, and that's one of the biggest reasons why a lot of people identify as libertarians is because they just um, you know have cast off this these other visions of uh, political philosophy and approaches that they find just didn't have the answers that they were looking for. And so the idea of an academic journal was just really natural in that respect uh because um, you know there really isn't anything quite out there as I write in the in the preface. I kind of have the same um say some of the same things about what what is there and what publications are there, but you know the idea is just that here is a platform for uh, intellectuals, for pastors, scholars, uh, professors, whatever, to get together and explore some topics, but they do it from a libertarian and a Christian perspective. And as it stands, there really isn't anything quite like that. So it's a place where, you know, like for instance, in one article we have in this first volume, it's, it's, a, it's a very economic article, it's by uh, uh, Salter and Callahan, and it's on distributism and uh you know it's just it's very natural for them they can they can openly talk if they want to about theology god whatever without being judged or without worrying about their article being rejected and so that's that's kind of unique like that uh and so and you could see it from the other way around that uh theologians uh, people who want to talk about theological topics uh, they can do that from a, a libertarian perspective without having to catch up their audience on all these different ideas of freedom, non-aggression, and things things like that. So then, that can really lead to some uh, very productive and unique and, and and important scholarship, I think. So, anyway, yeah, like you said, that idea has kind of been in my mind for a couple years, and uh, when I met you and uh, uh, Norman Horn. At the 2000, I believe it was 14, uh, Austin uh, f- f- uh, Freedom, I forget the name of the title now.
0: I wasn't there in 2014, but you and I uh, had met in the 2016 conference.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. The time flies. Uh, yeah, 2016 in Austin. And um, and I began sort of you know, this spreading the idea and planting seeds for it, and I talked to Dr. Victor Klar and um, and uh, who else was there? Uh, A couple others. Uh, I I met uh, Robert Murphy, and he was the the main speaker of that event. And started planting seeds, and it was generally pretty positive. But it really came together when, uh, really, when when you and and Norm and and Doug and others had asked for the uh, for involvement of other editors. You know, eighty percent of people I've never really heard of or read, uh, roughly. And they just all said yes. And that was kind of unexpected. Like, um, you know, people are pretty busy and here's a guy I don't really know. And you know, what is this going to be? But it seemed to be so, uh, such fertile soil that just the idea just, just grew kind of like crazy. And, um, and so it was, yeah. It just it just came together really organically, really naturally. And the first volume that is officially released today, as people hear this, has been a, a huge, huge success.
0: Right. I mean, I'm I'm amazed at our editorial team, and I've I've said that on several other occasions. We have just a a fantastic group of some top notch uh, thinkers in in. Theology and philosophy and history and law and economics. Uh, I mean, this is just—we we couldn't have asked for a, a better review board. Um, why don't you tell for for our listeners? I mean, they'll, they'll recognize some some names, some big names like uh, in the libertarian space, anyway, like uh, Robert Murphy, who you mentioned earlier, Doug Bandau from the Cato Institute, uh, Gerard Casey, just a fantastic. Uh, philosopher and and thinker uh, Kevin Goodsman, an excellent historian. Um, d- tell us tell us some about some of the others who who are who are are the on the editorial team here.
1: Uh, yeah, those and then uh, of course uh, I mentioned uh, Dr. V- uh, Victor Clark and he's um, uh, associate professor of economics at Florida Gulf Coast University. He has this distinguished uh, professorship in free enterprise. He's just a, a wonderful guy. I. I talked with him at the Free Market Forum in Houston a couple months ago. And um, Jeffrey Urbiner uh, is professor and chair of economics at Grove City College and senior fellow at Ludwig von Mises Institute. Uh, Of course, Norman, uh, we know him, and uh, Jason Jewell. Uh, He's kind of new to me. He's professor and chair of humanities at Faulkner University and is really valuable, I think, um, for someone who knows literature. There's not a lot of people out there anymore like that.
0: And he's he's been on our show, and we he and I actually talked about that topic.
1: Yeah, that's right, and I did listen to that. Yeah, that was a really enjoyable uh, podcast you guys did. Who else here? I I, I don't really know David Riggs that well. Um, Sean Rittenor, he's a professor of economics, also at Grove City College, and I use, actually use his textbook uh, when I teach economics at at the college I work at. Charles and I'm—I don't know how to say his last name. Talia Farrow, I think, is how you say it. I re- every time I read his biography, I laugh out loud. I'm not kidding. This has happened like three or four times already because I'm not convinced he exists. Like I—I I really don't think he exists. Like you read through it, it's like there's nobody that <laughs> that has done all of this. You know, it's
0: just—he yeah, is—he is immensely immensely qualified, a, a truly consummate scholar, and. Let me just give a, a very public thanks to our friend David Thoreau at the Independent Institute who uh, referred me to Charles uh, to to reach out as an editor. So thank you to David Thoreau and the Independent Institute,
1: and and thank you to Charles. Absolutely, yeah. And I hear he's, he's very very busy, and um, I mean you can just you can tell by by reading through it. And uh, Tim Terrell uh, is associate professor of economics at. Wofford College, I think is how you say it. I'm not sure. Also assistant editor of the quarterly journal of Austrian economics and, uh, and other things as well. And he's, he's a new uh, uh, face to me, but he has, uh, actually, uh, already served in a, in a, in a capacity of reviewing an article and was, you know, did very timely and excellent feedback. And then, uh, uh, Chris O'Kali is a friend of mine and colleague, who is an independent scholar from New York, and we serve together on the Canadian American Theological Association board and um, wonderful New Testament scholar and uh, professor. so yeah, I mean that that's just that's just the first year and there's there's three or four others I have in mind because i these this is just the first round like who we could find, who we could find to get involved. To have this many and this qualified is is more than actually a lot of other journals out there, and now I want to kind of balance it out. I'm realizing after getting submissions, oh wow, we don't have a lot of people in uh, like ancient history it might be really valuable in some respects. We ha- we're really heavy on e- on economists. Um, you know, it would I don't want to keep sending the same like. Articles to, you know, the same four people or something. So um, I'm going to have to, you know, get a few more just to make sure it's balanced. But it, it's, you know, it's an experiment. This whole thing is an experiment. I, I've, I've been a peer review editor of a couple different journals, but not a general editor, and it's a very different experience for me. And there's a lot of uh, whole new issues to deal with, and uh, especially when, you know, the biggest thing that is just the weight of releasing a public document that you're responsible for and trying to squeeze out all these last minute typos and little errors and and things like that and in the article on distributism uh i sent it to dr salter asking him for a uh, a proof like is there anything wrong with this and he's like yeah you missed a co-author <laughs> and I'm like, oh okay I, I don't know how that happened and so i uh put in uh, Eugene Callahan's name in there and his his bio information and I I just really don't know how that happened but uh so there's you know there's little things like that but um uh, anyway yeah we're we're super blessed to have a great staff and it's going to continue to grow and um I always and, and several of them have contributed in the first edition which I I really wanted to happen which is a great blessing as well so so that's that's big i mean that's like the backbone of the whole journal and that's uh you know, established and taken care of, and and now it's just kind of maintenance. So that's that's really great.
0: And you and I are both actually uh, contributing authors to this first volume. Your article, Christian Libertarianism: An Introduction and Signposts for the Road Ahead, and then my extended review article of Greg Boyd's recent—I uh, don't know if you can call it his magnum opus, but it, it's certainly probably one of the most significant works he's ever. Uh, produced about fourteen hundred pages or so crucifixion of the warrior god so since we 're both here uh, let's let 's talk a little bit about about our pieces so uh, what what is the topic of of your article? What can readers expect to find there specifically
1: well i I was sort of shy about publishing an article in the first one as the general editor that 's not i mean it 's not extremely unusual but um you know, it's I basically wanted to kind of lay out some some basic things about what Christian libertarianism is, what the basic contours of it is, what but then also the type of writing that this will be, uh the, the sort of tone so that other contributors will sort of get an idea, or at least those who who aren't so sure and maybe they're trying to get published for the first or second time or something. Um so I wanted to sort of set an example in a way I guess was was one of my goals but also to uh, uh, you know carve out what I think you know are some of the fundamentals of of uh, the perspective that we're embodying in the journal but that was just the first half. I thought it'd be interesting to then go into the unknowns a little bit and say here's the work we should do here's some areas we haven't addressed Uh, you know christian libertarianism as as a even as a phrase as a word pair is very recent and people identifying as christian libertarians is also somewhat recent although you know we argue the roots are extremely ancient so what i do in the second half is explore some of the areas i think uh could be challenging or possibly confusing they need clarification um or areas that uh we hope to see development and, and exploration and that that's that's all over i mean that 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 concerns not just economic issues but a lot of ethical ones and so there's different sections there and you know what is the bible and and how does Feminism and sexual ethics fit in with all of this, um, and uh, versions of capitalism, and, and what what does it mean to to be a Christian and to live in a free market, and how should that look? And I don't know, just different areas like that. But so the first part of the the first part of that article, though, I shape around four um, general themes, and uh, the. Those themes are basically what I see as the overlapping content, I guess, of Christian theology and libertarianism. And just to make sure I get it right, oh, there it is. Yeah, the first is peace and nonviolence. That's kind of the central one that drives all the other ideas is peace and nonviolence and non-aggression and, you know, Christians and libertarians are very, very serious about not committing violence. And of course, we, we would add more technical definitions that not initiating force against a person or their property. And that, that I mean, it, when, you, when you lay it out like this, I, to me, it seems very obvious. And that was kind of my goal. For some people, Christianity and libertarianism just has nothing to do with each other. They're opposed or, you know, just, just a weird combination. But the way I see it is, they're they're really, uh, you know, one is an extension of another, and that that's a that's a pretty big claim. That's that's a lot weightier than the work of you know Elise Daniel and and the book uh, called to freedom. They initiated a very mild project, which is Christianity and libertarianism are compatible. You know, they're just trying to get that discussion going, and that's you know, the the best place to start. But I wanted to go further and say they're actually complementary and they actually go together and um it, it makes the most sense. And so, you know, like someone like Walter Bloch, he would say, like the biggest focus of libertarianism is when do we use force? And one of the biggest distinctives of Jesus of Nazareth, from which we get the word Christianity, Jesus was the Christ is his remarkably peaceful life so that that goes together now in a larger project i'm working on i want to explore if it's the same kind of peace if it is the same non-coercive type of peace and of course i think it is but a lot of people would question that and say well you know our modern understanding of non-aggression you're just reading that back into the new testament so I'll, i'll work deal with that later so that's kind of the first theme and the second is freedom and voluntary order, which is just a corollary. Um, you know, Christians promote freedom, and in the New Testament, we see that this, there's this this theme of non-compulsory behavior. Like this is distinctive of the New Covenant era, um, which you give you give out of the goodness of your heart, for example, um, and it's a voluntary society. the The church is is not a coercive institution, at least it shouldn't. I just watched a video on on YouTube last night of this gal who escaped a cult from New Zealand, and of course they call themselves Christian and whatever, and it's like this is, I, you know, it's not not Christian. It doesn't deserve that name, precisely because of its coercive nature. And uh, a third theme was decentralization and the diffusion of power. A little bit more complex, but again, a logical corollary of of peace and nonviolence. Um. We see this. This gets into a little bit more controversial because, especially in the Western intellectual tradition, there's there's tons of hierarchies. They're all modeled around these, um, you know, one person at top, like the Roman Empire or the Catholic Church or, you know, this organization or that. They're really sort of triangular, so it's hard for us to kind of predate that to go back and to and to read the New Testament. Uh, in its own context, and how um, it actually isn't so centralized, um, you know, pastors, elders, that the model of ecclesiology is, um, you know, it's it's very mutual, and is not so linear and hierarchical like that, and, uh, you know, diffusion of power, it's the same thing, that's, that's, um, you know, part of libertarianism, when you give people, when you when you give people the power the rights that they have you give them freedom uh they can only screw up so much they can only damage so many things so many people but if you give a government you know for example a lot of power the damage is all the all the all that much greater and so um you know that as as some some others have have said and argued that you know how many people has anarchy killed you know it's it's like nothing compared to how many people governments have killed, and so it's that kind of idea there. And then finally, a a fourth theme that I look at is concern for economic flourishing, and you know how, how many libertarians are economists? A a bunch, and uh, a lot of our uh, editors are economists, and they believe that um, you know freedom and voluntary. Uh, exchange is the basis for a prosperous society. And they have a lot of good reasons for believing that and teaching that. And a lot of those ideas of, of freedom and, and business-making and culturing and transforming the raw goods of creation into something useful or beautiful or whatever has its roots, actually, in Christian theology and Christian thought. So they, they really go together uh, well, there uh, as as well. So, anyway, that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do: is provide an extremely concise summary of what Christian libertarianism is about, and then uh, look at other areas that um, that could be, uh, you know, more, uh, more developed in 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 more extensive ways. And.
0: My piece uh, is actually the, the fourth the, the fourth and final of the, of the main articles. Yours is the first but we'll, we'll skip ahead here and talk about that so I'll kind of just go over what what I discuss and if you have any questions for me you can ask. Uh, so uh, Greg Boyd is a scholar who most of our listeners are probably familiar with. in fact he was on this show several months ago talking about, uh, th- this basic theme that he discusses in Crucifixion of the Warrior God. We had him on right around the time the, the popular version of that book, Cross Vision, was published. Uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God came out earlier in 2017. As I mentioned at the outset, it's it's a massive work, about 1,400 or so pages in two volumes. Uh, and essentially, Boyd's thesis comes down to to this concept, that because Christ crucified is the primary and supreme and unqualified revelation of who God actually is, and how he is, and the way he behaves towards man, any imagery or portrayals in earlier revelation—and Boyd is thinking mostly here of the Old Testament— uh, although also to some extent in the New, uh, must be filtered through that lens as an accommodation uh, of God to the people, to the authors, the, the people of Israel, the prophets, of of how he actually is. In other words, God is stooping uh, at these earlier points in Revelation and allowing an obscured portrait of himself to be perceived uh, to accommodate the narrative of redemptive history up until we get to Christ who is the true and full and perfect revelation of how God actually is. And Boyd argues from that that God is eternally nonviolent and non-coercive. So he's essentially saying that these actions we see in the Old Testament attributed to Yahweh, uh, which are often cited by unbelievers and skeptics and, the New Atheist Movement, uh, although this has been, this critique has been happening for, for millennia, uh, that that's not how God actually is. It's how he allowed himself to be portrayed. Now, of course, this is a very controversial thesis, at least in, in the modern sense, and certainly for evangelicals and post-fundamentalists and those of us, pretty much anyone in the last 200 years or so. Uh, but Boyd makes a deeply historical argument, going back to ancient Christianity in the ancient church, citing examples from Origen and John Cassian and Irenaeus and Gregory of Nyssa, as well as more general and broad themes of ancient interpretation to argue that this really isn't uh, an innovative way of thinking. This is actually a very ancient way of thinking. Now, there are various issues with the way he presents things, and certainly there's critiques that, that could be brought up, uh, and how he conflates his thesis at times with other elements of his thinking, like his open theism, or his, uh, his, his take on free will versus divine sovereignty. I mean, these are all, and, and, and how, he, how he interprets atonement, I mean, these are all very relevant issues uh, that necessarily are related to his thesis here. But one of the things that I talk about in my review is there's other ways that, even if you adopt Boyd's broad thesis in in its most basic sense, you could still be reformed or still believe in penal substitution. There's just maybe some nuance that would have to kind of go on to that if if you're tracking with Boyd's thinking. So it's... It, it is a very important book that he's written, and I take issue with parts of it and the way he said some things, and I discuss some of that in the review, uh, but overall, it's a very compelling thesis, and it's historically grounded, and that's that's very persuasive to me, is, is you know, looking back to ancient Christianity, the ancient church, particularly the pre-Constantinian church, because that's Three hundred years there, approximately before uh, before the Constantinian shift, um, and 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 Boyd does that quite well to say that you know he's not being an innovator here; he's actually taking us back to the roots of Christianity. So, whether you agree with his conclusions or not, uh, it's it's a serious scholarly work, copious copious footnotes on almost every page, and I I would I would highly recommend it.
1: Now, Nick, uh, didn't he write a one-volume synopsis of the bigger work called Cross Vision, if I remember right? There is right. a a smaller right, yes. one-volume, so maybe that would be something our our listeners would also be interested in if they don't have the time to dig into that huge portion and they want a smaller version of it. I think that that's available, yeah
0: right and that's when Boyd was on our podcast and it was Doug and myself interviewing him that was that was right around the time cross vision came out and he was mostly discussing uh, mostly discussing cross vision although it is a highly condensed version of crucifixion of the warrior God so uh, I, I can't claim to have read cross vision the the smaller more layman oriented version um, I, I did skim it but yeah. Anyone who is wanting to dive into this, if you don't have time to go into Boyd's uh, lengthy academic treatise, then yeah, pick up Cross Vision. And you know, one of the one of the things I do want to mention here is that one of the challenges for me just writing this piece um, was trying to condense it to <laughs> to the ten, within our ten thousand word limit because it, basically I have to take a um, a fourteen hundred page book, and condense the argument down, and incorporate my own insights, and, and, and do it in ten thousand words. So that was a challenge. It, it takes a lot of a lot of editing, and I'm not a I'm not a full time scholar. Uh, I'm I'm come from the business world, but so it was it, it was an interesting experience for me. Uh, but I, I think it turned out relatively well, and hopefully it's it contributes to the conversation uh, around Boyd's book. There are others who are reviewing it and other, other journals and periodicals as well. So I think it's going to be a very important book uh, and, and heavily discussed in the coming years and perhaps decades. So I, I'm glad that Christian Libertarian Review was able to... Uh, to publish a review article on it here on the outset in our in our first volume. So we will now take a look at the, the other two articles and some of the book reviews that can be found, and we'll bring Ruth into the conversation. Ruth Ryder, assistant editor at Christian Libertarian Review, along with uh, myself. Ruth, thanks for being here. Um, some of our readers and listeners have probably seen a little bit of your your work on the LCI website. I think you've published a couple articles on the LCI website. Um but for those who aren't familiar, just tell us a little bit about about your background and and your graduate work and um uh, kind of how you got involved with the journal.
2: All right. Well, first, thank you for having me. Um about myself. I grew up in southeastern Michigan in a culturally republican home, but not Christian. I wasn't really into either politics or religion until I became a Christian when I was about 19. And the Christians who led me to Christ also happened to be both fundamentalists and also hardcore Republicans. So you could say that I didn't have the most fortuitous start on this journey. I started getting a little apathetically involved in college Republicans, but it was also around that time that I met my first Libertarian And I'd also changed my major to history specifically because I found theology and church history so fascinating. And maybe that would have been basically the end of my story, except that the pastors of the Fundamentalist Campus Ministry had started telling me what I couldn't do because I was female. So that launched me on a trajectory of studying the roles of women in the early church and how we ought to understand certain passages in the Bible that are routinely used to limit women's roles. And so I I landed at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, where I had to read Daniel Migliori's Faith-Seeking Understanding. But you could say that I wasn't really ready for it at the time. Actually, I didn't even remember reading it until recently. I found something I'd written about it. It was kind of like a memento moment, learning things about myself for the first time that I didn't even remember. So then I went on to Notre Dame where I earned my Master of Theological Studies in the History of Christianity and my world turned upside down primarily due to one class in my first semester about ancient Christian martyrdom taught by Professor Candida Moss who was amazing, I have to say. And from then on I had to really wrestle with finding my footing in this new way of understanding how we should read the Bible. And... This last year, actually, I was listening to your podcast with Jamin. He recommended miliori's book, and I thought, hey, I should read that. I bet that would help me get some things figured out. And what do you know, this time it stuck. At the same time, I'd met a couple more libertarians, one of whom I would end up marrying. And it was through talking to him that I really started looking into libertarianism and realized it was where I belonged. I started blogging because I was... At home with a newborn and didn't know what else to do. And I was reading this stuff over at LCI. And one day I reached out to Nick to see if there was any way I could help. And here I am. And uh, I feel like I should say that I mentioned my struggles with breaking away from Biblicism, as I really feel that this is a huge challenge in reaching American Christians about libertarianism and helping break them away from statism in the ways it is contrary to Jesus Christ. I think that the two go hand in hand from my perspective. And that's about all I have to say, I guess.
0: So, fascinating journey. I mean, we're, we're very glad to have you uh, here on on the team. And, you know, you, you've put a tremendous amount of work into helping to get volume one of Christian Libertarian Review off the ground. So, thank you very much for that. Um, tell us a little bit about, since you were, I mean, you were really involved in, in sort of reading and editing these manuscripts... And tell us about some, a couple of the other articles here. We have the David Urban article contextualizing C.S. Lewis's Christian libertarianism, uh, and we have the Salter and Callahan article, uh, "Dead Ends and Living Currents: Distributism as a Progressive Research Program." So, what what are these articles talking about? What are the what is the basic uh, idea that the authors are trying to convey?
2: Okay, so the first article by Dr. Urban about C.S. Lewis. Actually, he had written an article about for the Foundation for Economic Education, which I'm pretty sure I read as soon as it was published, so I was excited to read about this in greater depth. In his article, Dr. Urban argues that, contrary to popular belief, Lewis was by no means apolitical, but rather an evaluation of his political thought reveals that he very much falls within the classical liberal or libertarian category, much like his friend. And Tolkien, I might add. Anyway, in this article, he engages with and builds upon a book titled C.S. Lewis on Politics and the Natural Law, written by Justin Buckley Dyer and Micah J. Watson, in addition to drawing from many other resources. And he thoroughly makes his case for Lewis's Christian libertarianism with some important caveats. It's not a perfect fit. Um, he transitions then to explore how Lewis's political views related to his position on controversial issues of his day. So we learn about his attitudes, for example, artic- articulated in his own words toward the state, democracy, homosexuality, and government health care.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, I had mentioned David Thoreau earlier from the Independent Institute, a uh, very good friend of LCI. and. He was on our show uh, earlier in 2017, and he and I actually talked about C.S. Lewis and natural law and how these things sort of fit together. And, and Thoreau's sort of a, uh, a C.S. Lewis scholar. Um, you know, one of the things that, that interests me, back when I was in college, I actually took a class in, in London uh, that was on Tolkien. And uh, as many of our listeners probably know, or may know, uh, he and, and Lewis were, were very close friends, and Tolkien was involved in uh, leading Lewis to, to Christ. And I, I think there's a compelling argument that can be made that, uh, that Tolkien's work is, is, essentially, it's almost anarcho-capitalist. Uh, and, and Lewis wasn't an anarcho-capitalist, but there's certainly a, a heavy libertarian uh, stream in his thinking, and, and uh, Thoreau helps bring that out well, and I, I think the Urban article helps bring that out well uh, also. So what about the, the Salter and Callahan piece?
2: All right, uh, the Salter and Callahan piece. Well, let me introduce the authors. Dr. Callahan possesses a PhD in political theory from Cardiff University, and he's a lecturer of economics at the State University of New York at Purchase. And Dr. Salter possesses a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University, and he's assistant professor of economics at Texas Tech University and many other impressive qualifications for both of them. So in this article, we learn that distributism is a social program closely associated with Catholic social teaching, but is by no means limited to Catholics, and interestingly, it is currently experiencing something of a revival. It was actually developed by Chesterton and Belloc, which surprised me, in response to what they felt was the source of societal ills. Namely, they believed that the problem wasn't so much private property, but that private property, specifically capital goods or the means of production, rather than consumption goods, wasn't distributed widely and evenly enough. So they focus on the question, uh, what parts of distributism are living proposals for reform? and what parts should be, in their words, considered dead, killed by a better comprehension of economic reality. So they draw from both Mises and Hayek, along with many other sources, they assess which elements are good and which are dead. Despite distributism's fallbacks or shortcomings, there are some valuable underlying assumptions and intuitions distributist thought, such as the understanding that power must be dispersed in order for it to be wielded safely. And what is needed now, the authors argue, is for these principles to be augmented by sound economics. Doing that, it turns out that distributism would have much to offer to discussions concerning the tax code licensing, uh, for example, relating to Uber and Airbnb and so on. This article well, I found personally is excellent, not just for its balanced and thoughtful treatment of distributism, which I didn't even know what that was at the time I was reading it, but it's also a lesson in economics in and of itself. And I think readers will come away with a better understanding of how to think about and address pressing social and economic concerns, as well as the well-intentioned but economically unsound proposals we regularly encounter.
0: And we also have a number of uh, normal-length book reviews uh, in, in this first issue of CLR. I believe we have seven. Um, and Ruth, you, you did a book review. How was how that experience? What book did you review, and what was your takeaway?
2: Well, I reviewed Helen Rees' Loving the Poor, Saving the Rich, Wealth, Poverty, and Early Christian Formation. Rees is currently Associate Professor of Church History at Westmont College. And in this book, she addresses the attitudes of early Christians toward wealth and wealthy and poverty and the poor and their Greco-Roman, Jewish, religious, socioeconomic and cultural contexts. And she argues that these attitudes were intimately related to early Christian identity formation. So she talks, one of her major themes is about how the church adopted these models from the state specifically Roman patronage, and as time went on, patronage became more and more Christianized until it was sort of institutionalized in the increasingly centralized authority of the church. Uh, Her book does have some major weaknesses, particularly when she attempts to apply her analysis to contemporary socioeconomic problems. Sometimes she expresses praise for capitalism, and then other times it's for big government programs. So it's a little puzzling, and I I try to address her concerns and point out um, how government interference is a cause of a lot of her concerns. And although I didn't state this in my review, one possible route that I think she could have taken in her application might have been to assess whether or not the early church should have modeled itself so heavily after the state whether this co-opting of state models has been helpful or harmful to the poor, and whether today it ought to to consider divesting itself of these elements.
0: Well, that's just a sampling of some of the excellent content that we have in Volume 1 of Christian Libertarian Review. Uh, Jamin, what's next for the journal? I mean, we just rolled out Volume 1. I I, I think it's excellent. I think everyone here thinks that it, it turned out very, very well. And you know we're we're, we're going to keep going. Um, there, there there will be a volume two and a volume three, and hopefully uh, CLR will become at least this is my this is my vision. I'll let you uh, talk next, but I, I hope this becomes a, a tremendous conduit in in academic theology and ultimately down into the church, the just in, in into the pews uh, for thinking about the intersection of Christianity with, with liberty and with the non-aggression principle and with free market economics and how these things are, are conducive to building and, and growing the kingdom of God. What's, what's your vision and, and take?
1: Well, I think it's, it's just really important, at the very least, to demonstrate that uh, a lot of the stereotypes about Christian libertarians are outright uh, false. Um it is not just a uh and I actually mentioned this in the beginning of the journal in the in the preface. If you download the full version and you read the editor's preface, I explain a little bit how libertarianism is is not a fringe thing uh at least not anymore and uh it because when you you know you listen to stuff like Albert moeller and other popular Christian figures. It's presented in such a way that like it's it's just sort of the kookiest thing and it does it's not really having an impact. And you know, if you want to be a political loser, you'll be a libertarian. That that's kind of the way it's framed, anyway. And and also, you know, intellectually, like it's it just has no real grounding, and maybe there's some good ideas, but uh ultimately it's not going to affect the world in any real way. And so it's just really important that uh, just the very existence of the journal will show that actually there's a lot of people that are involved, a lot of people who are thinking through these things and that there is a coherent, um, you know, message and a, and a coherent integration between these things. And that's just, that's just going to, I think create, I, I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know how that's going to be used necessarily. We can imagine how, you know, it has been through other journals and how they've assisted in that. But, uh, you know, it's it's just like LCI has already has a blog and already has a, a, a podcast, and you know, is there a future for Christian libertarianism? Well, if there is, then this is obviously the next step to me. That's that's how I see it anyway. And uh, I just got the first, um, well, not maybe not the first, might be the second uh, submission for the twenty nineteen uh, about two hours ago. Uh, so, and that's and that's actually, I'm I'm virtually certain we're going to publish that review. It looks sure. really good. And so, the interest is already growing. And I was surprised too about uh, a, a doctor uh, Victor Klar. He he accidentally announced the journal. Yes, well, it would be a few days ago from when you, people are hearing this, uh, which is sort of funny, because like there's this really a aggr- awesome response. <laughs> even when it wasn't officially announced yet and but that was even you know so I, I don't care whatever um but you know it was really encouraging and and this is going to i think this is going to go places and, br- and bring a lot of people together and just in allow people to get out of the closet i mean there's a ton of 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 closet libertarians i mean um and i've talked to a lot of them at Uh, different conferences where it's like, yeah, you know, I think trade, like Trump's trade policies are silly. And I go to this Christian institution where Trump is like God and I can't say anything. And there's, there's no medium. So this really, you you discover all these things and all these people are talking about it. You know, these conversations that have sort of been pushed and suppressed under certain administrations and certain environments I think this is really going to be a huge bridge to new conversations and opportunities to uh, to expand in, into more public discourse.
0: I think so as well. I mean, we we hear all the time stories like what you were just describing. You know, of of people saying, "Oh, well, yes, I really do kind of lean libertarian, or at least think I do, but I can't say it," uh, or you know, it's it, it goes against the policy of my university, or it goes against the the confessional statement of the the church in which I serve, or, or something like that. Well, uh, hopefully we can change the conversation, and not not single handedly, of course. I mean, like as you and I have discussed before, you know, it, thank God it's it, we're not the only ones doing this, uh, but I, I do think we have a very important role and an important voice. But I'm I'm grateful that there's that there's so many others who are pushing in the same direction, and I think that uh, CLR will be a a, just an, an, another tool, another avenue, and hopefully a very important one that helps contribute in that direction. Now, as far as what people can do to, to support the journal going forward, you just mentioned we got our second submission for the 2019 journal. I'd like to encourage anyone who's listening, if you, because uh, we have scholars and pastors and priests who listen to this show, and others who are and, and lay scholars as well, uh, I'd sub- give us submissions. You know, we're we're, we're open submission. You don't have to be a, a PhD to... Uh, submit a piece to CLR. So if you have talent as an academic, as a scholar, as a researcher, uh, consider consider submitting a manuscript. Uh, consider reaching out to do
1: some book reviews if, you, if you're skilled in that area. There is so much literature and so many new monographs uh, in the economic disciplines and theological disciplines and, and even in ones that specifically try to connect them and of course of politics too and there's there's not enough people and it it'd be a shame to miss all of these and frankly it doesn't take a lot to write a good review just good writing skills and thoughtfulness you know and and that's that's about all you need to to do that part of it and uh you know the other the articles are we obviously encourage submission there too that that's going to be a little more technical and be a bigger commitment but um yeah, it's it's anyone in principle, you know, uh, can contribute. And, and those out those requirements and and guidelines are obviously on the website, and uh, you can read them there. Yeah, or or you know, talk to someone else who might be willing to to put it uh, our way as well. So yeah, I just want to encourage that. And in just in closing, also I want to thank uh, the LCI board and advisory board and and all the uh, contributors to the uh the institute and uh to to nick and and to ruth ruth is just done awesome editorial work super timely and it's a lot of work and uh also to doug and, and others who are putting all this together doug has basically made the website and that was a off my back and so I, I really appreciate that and uh to anybody else who uh is is supportive of this project because uh you know we're all doing it out of our time you know we don't get paid and we just believe this is important and it's gonna it's gonna make a lasting contribution
0: and you did mention the website for those who uh, have not seen it yet it will be it will be put up on the lci website we'll link over to it but we have Christianlibertarianreview.com, com dedicated website for the journal which will actually uh, be the the hub the nexus of the journal's work, so please check that out. Please share it with your networks, your your social media, your friends, your email lists. Uh, certainly, if if you're maybe you're a seminary student or an undergrad, share it with your professors. Um, assuming you're at a Christian college, if not, maybe <laughs> maybe don't share it with your professors unless they're Christian. Uh, that might that might trigger some people. Um, but yeah, just, just just help us get the word out. Uh, this is this is really a community project for, for LCI and, and for the church and for the academic community. So uh, we're we're excited to see where it's gonna go. I I'm very pleased with what we've been able to put together here in volume one. And you know, Lord willing we'll see some some great things going forward. So Jamin, Ruth, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much. Oh, thank you.
0: That does it for this episode of the libertarian christian podcast if you'd like to support us and the important work that we're doing like christian libertarian review you can do that at LibertarianChristians.com slash donate please also engage with our content on social media share it with your networks and just thank you for for all you do uh supporting lci we'll see you next time
2: Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered five hundred one c three nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.